everybody. Welcome to another week in semiconductor land and another episode of The Circuit. I am Ben Beharin. Greetings, Internet. I'm Jake Oldberg. And uh, before we get started today, I just want to post a correction. A couple episodes back, I talked about Google's video coding unit, the VCU, which is my favorite chip. And I, uh, I mislabeled. There's a good article about it, and it's written by Max Cherney in the protocol. I'd said it was someplace else. We'll put the link in the show notes. Anybody interested in custom silicon, roll your own silicon, should take a look. It's a good article. Yeah. Max Sorry is a about good that. guy. Yeah. Max is a good guy. He's written a lot of really good stuff. So we talk to him and follow him uh, regularly. Um, all right. Well, uh, Jay is back from experiencing nature in Yellowstone and the, uh, the Tetons, but he missed uh, a s- several interesting news bits that we'll talk about last week and I caught him up on, but this idea of, we've talked about it before, but the globalization and or deglobalization of the semiconductor industry. Um, but, but interesting on the horizon is Taiwan is going to be having an election soon. And so one of the presidential, they say the presidential front runners has been talking up the whole, you know, we're friends with China. Uh, TSMC is in a good spot. He's also not going to discourage TSMC from expanding globally. And we also saw some, you know, a reincarnation of some news no, that TSMC is, is delaying his, uh, or TSMC is delaying their uh, Arizona fab slightly um, till to a 2025, citing lack of skilled workers on that front. Pat Gelsinger, had, Intel CEO, had come out and made some comments about it's not that easy to just move people you know, from Taiwan to the United States. And so hence why Intel's got an advantage because they've got a lot of people in, in the States already doing this. So it was an interesting, at least in semiconductor circles lands, an interesting uh, week of commentary. Um, but I do think these couple of threads are interesting. Like I said, one what Taiwan is going through in terms of of this election and how chips play a big part of it as a narrative, I think is interesting. Um, it may have happened seasons before, but I wasn't watching it as closely as I am now. But also just the the broader challenge of this deglobalization. It's also for sometimes referred to as onshoring or reshoring. Uh, friend shoring, another term I've heard talked about uh, frequently, but we thought it would be good to spend some time in this episode talking a little bit specific, more specifically about those challenges of of a global, very complex semiconductor industry that relies on all these different countries trying to bring more of that into uh, into their own into their own uh, land. So. We'll sort of start there. I know you. I know you missed the news, but we've talked about this uh, frequently. Um, any new thoughts on the situation? <laughs> my, when you were telling me about this, the first thing that jumped into my mind was, I, I should have stayed in the in Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah. Stay off the grid. I so stay off the grid. It was wonderful. Um, no, I. So first, I'm going to steer clear of Taiwanese presidential politics because I've learned the hard way. It's, I don't have any idea what's going on yes, yes. in their political landscape, but I do. I do think it is interesting how semiconductors have become such a sort of 
high priority political topic in yeah. lots of countries. It's not just Taiwan. It's important here. It's important in Germany and other parts of Europe. And obviously it's a big political issue in China. And I, I guess the, the place to start is, I don't know, would we start with TSMC or do we start with the U.S.? Well, I, I just want to echo think, the, the I think T- I want to echo the point you made because I think this is interesting, right? My, so I do wonder that this is what my thought about this Taiwan thing happened because again, right, we're rolling into an election next year and you're hearing similar commentary from the White House that yes, this chips ish will be a part of the narrative, but they're trying they're trying to not make it as I guess as doubling down on it as Biden was before as a narrative. So like they're trying to massage it more about, you know, let's collaborate, let's be friendly, but we want this here, you know, et cetera. But, but I like this point of when democratic uh, countries come up for, or have presidential campaigns, how much this conversation of tech manufacturing, whether that's Silicon or devices, because devices is happening in India and there are some fabs going in India, like you said, becomes a part of the, of the overall campaigning because it's so fundamental or a fundamental talking point. I just think that's interesting. So we can start with Taiwan or here, but th- this to me feels like about a talking point battleground that's more new than it was, you know, four or five years ago or, li- or, or longer. Yeah. It's, it's really weird to me how like during the pandemic, all of a sudden semis became cool because you and I have been in and around semis for a long time and nobody cared outside of, you know, our, our little world. And and now it's this big, big issue and everybody's talking about it. My relatives are asking me about chips and it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. And I, I think it gets, it gets very confused. A lot of issues get conflated. Uh, I've been listening to a number of news things about it, podcasts on the road and, and the like, and, and it, it's it, it's amazing to me, like how like how many subtleties of the conversation get just sort of blurred over. Like there's a fundamental lack of understanding of just fab versus fabless, right? And that's a big part of the discussion that gets that gets mixed. Like people say, "Oh, America's falling behind in semiconductors." Well, no, we have all you know, ten of the top ten fabless design companies are U.S. companies, right? We're we're are we falling behind in manufacturing? I mean, that means Intel, right? And Intel is probably maybe turning the corner. So it's it's a complex issue and it's it's now getting buried in politics, uh, which is which is not great, but it is what it is. And I think, you know, I, I'm not surprised. It's an important an important foundation of our global modern economy. So that that being said, I you know, I, I I, I get a little worried with some of the commentary that's coming out of political centers everywhere that uh, I, I'm not quite sure what, what the goal is in a lot of these cases. That's what worries me. It's like, what are we really trying to achieve? Right. And as a U.S. citizen and a U.S. Pa- taxpayer, I care most about what's what's happening here and what where are my tax dollars going to go. And I like some of the things the government has done and other things I don't like so much. Yeah. I, I think one of the real interesting bits here for where where we'll just say areas where there is the infrastructure to pull this off. And by infrastructure, I mean 
foundries, right? The ability to build, the ability to get equipment and the ability to have the, the human resources. So the, the skill sets to do so. There's just not, that doesn't exist, right? In every country. And it's, it's more ingrained in some countries than others, right? I think that's a key, there's a key part of the, the strengths discussion, right? Who can do this? And so, you know, I was thinking about this when, when some of this commentary I was having with other people last week uh, in semis about this was, you know, in, 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 the United States has a lot of the infrastructure to do this. But again, you look at a, at a company like Intel who has, because of their longstanding role in the semiconductor, actually has foundries or R&D and technologies in other places. Like I almost took Intel's comments or Pat's comments like, we can do it globally. Other people might have more challenges, like to this DSMC point. Like they're struggling coming here. We've done this globally for years. And so we're better at it. Whether that's what he meant or not, like that was kind of my my takeaway. But it's 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 an infrastructure, right? People process um, you know, skill sets across the entire the the board that I think makes it possible for some to do and others. Now, again, it doesn't mean that it's a slam dunk that Intel pulls all of this off from a, from a manufacturing standpoint either. But I do think it's interesting because you could argue who's done the best as a foundry at globalizing before. And, and there's really, there's only a handful, a handful of people. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think you know, this is this is expensive stuff, right? Fab costs $30 billion. So there's only a small number of companies in the world that can even imagine spending that. And an even smaller group, smaller number of companies that can, that have the capability yeah. to do it. TSMC has had this advantage for a long time where they have the benefit of, uh, we can't say manipulated, but uh, certainly tightly managed currency which has given them a significant advantage in effectively lowering their cost of labor, right? And it's interesting to me because TSMC has, uh, I think Morris Chang and a couple of, I think that, or maybe a couple of, of, C, uh, of TSMC execs have said, producing in Arizona is going to be 20 to 30% yeah. more expensive than it right. is to produce in Taiwan. And, you know, 30% is roughly what the experts say the new Taiwan dollar is undervalued by. Right. And so it, it's, I, I don't think it should be lost on people that Taiwan has had this currency advantage compounding in its favor for 20 plus years. And I think that's, you know, that's a, a, a part of what they're going through now is, oh, they actually have to pay market rate for labor uh, in the international level. And so they're having a hard time recruiting people because they're not used to, they're, they're used to very different labor practices. Now, that being said, every time, Every a multi a company goes from its home to some other country and starts a new factory. There are growing pains, right? There's a whole like genre of literature of former Western American execs wrote books about their time opening car plants and food plants in China 20 years ago. It was the same kinds of things. It was like, oh, I can't believe this this workforce is so unprepared for this, and you know you, th those kinds of lamentations and. 99% of the time, it just turns out that there's just, there's just differences. Like 
the way you did it at home isn't going to work when you move overseas. And American companies saw that moving around the world in the, in the 80s and 90s. Japanese companies went through that when they had to open up plants and car plants in the U.S. It's just it's sort of a natural culture shock issue. And, uh, you know, I, th I think we can, we can chalk a lot of it up to just growing pains. And over time, those things get sorted out. I mean, right. I mean, I, I used to talk to I used to hang out with all these all these Americans who had lived in China for 10 years, opening plants in China. And they'd always complain about this or that. And they'd say, oh, the Chinese workforce isn't as good as the U.S. workforce. OK, but you know what? They seem to have fixed those problems, right? They they seem to be manufacturing just fine now. So, given enough time and a little bit of cultural adaptivity, the, these are these are solvable problems. And so, yeah. I'm not surprised that Taiwan TSMC is having a hard time opening its plant here. There was a story right before I left. I saw a story that TSMC had booked like a thousand plane tickets from Taipei to to Japan, Kumamoto, where they're opening they're opening another a plant in Japan. Right. And they're going through the exact same things there, right? And I, I don't think you can, you know, you can, you can't assume that the Japanese workforce is lazy or unqualified any more so than the U.S. workforce is. It's just different. But yeah. TSMC to get its plant working the way it wants to, the way it used to, they're gonna they're gonna move a thousand employees to Japan for a few years. Like the right. the employees and their families are gonna have to go live in Japan to get the plant set up. And, you know, that's one way to do it. There's probably a, a better way, but that's how they're going to do it. Yes. Well, and I think part, part of that was sort of, sort of to Pat's point, just saying how difficult it is to move a bunch of people here because it kind of sounded like that's what TSMC was, you know, going to do, ship people here so they've got talent. The, the cost one is, is a good one. Um, I mean, it seems like, right, at TSMC in Taiwan's always going to have a cost advantage over something that they do externally, which would be similarly true of, of Samsung um, at their leading edge, right? Which I think is, is interesting because it is one of the questions about, you know, how, how Intel continues to bring more of that talent and manufacturing to the United States at the leading edge, because there, there's an argument that their costs will actually be higher because of that. And so, customers of Intel's Intel's foundries will pay more in in their overall you know payments that they're going to make from a product side but but that would have similarly been true because you had heard right who's going to be who would be TSMC's main customer in the United States it would be Apple but Apple would end up paying more and so it's kind of like any customer that's looking at that could then say well do I want to make it with Intel if the price is the same or TSMC if price is relatively similar? Like that cost advantage may not be the same if somebody's looking at local, locally produced silicon. Yes, it'll be there in global. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's important too because it touches on something that has kind of been noodling around in my head for a while, which is that we tend to conflate the issue of capability and economics, right? Intel can manufacture, you know, EUV chips, two nanometer, whatever. They can they can do that today. They can't do it economically today. Right. And same thing in China. Like China has EUV systems. They can produce, you know, very, very small process, very small nodes. Um, they just can't do it at commercial scale. And I think that's 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 something that is important, but gets lost in a lot of these sort of high level conversations. 
a lot of what we're dealing with is just the economics of this as opposed to the technology of it. Technology, all these countries can do it, but economically it's much, it's, it's only TSMC can do it at that scale and, and maybe Samsung. Everyone else is still trying to iron out the economics and get, get their yields where they need to be to actually make money at this very expensive game. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, right. That, that comes back to the, the global dependencies of, of cost because, you know, part, part of this, and I, and I wonder, I wonder again, right. How much in, let's just say, we know it's going to come from Biden's side. I don't know what any Republican candidate will say, will say about this, but there is a, a need for technology trade to flow so that there aren't absorbent taxes and or um, fees placed on that trade that make it harder for, right, in this case, a, a U.S. company to get the goods and materials that they need. Because, you know, you, you see this all over the place, right? There's concerns that wafer price is rising. There's concerns that tooling is rising. And so all of that happens and it will be compounded if, again, we're not a global cooperative environment. Um so I'm, I'm curious kind of how the narrative softens in that way, just to make sure that, yeah, tra- trade agreements will remain in place. We're going to try to avoid absorbent fees because we know this is expensive because essentially we need, we need to keep whatever structural cost advantages we can in an environment that is a fully global semiconductor industry. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't know if you looked at the trade stats, but in all this talk of decoupling and deglobalization, right? Even, and, and then with the, the Trump tariffs and the semi-restrictions, China's exports to the rest of the world, China's exports to the US have actually continued to increase throughout all of this, right? So I'm not sure I even accept the premise of this, that there's decoupling going on. I think there is a very strong interest among American companies to reduce their reliance on China. Right. But as you and I have talked about before, that's going to take a decade or two to work out. And in the meantime, China still has a lot of advantages and is still the, you know, the leading manufacturer of a lot of things. Well, and I think right? the, we're still the, very, very much dependent on their trade. Yeah, I know. I think, I think the point is right, right. You've got, at least if we're just talking about coming back to China and the U S you've got China trying to decouple dependencies from the U S and, and, or from China and China trying to decouple from the U S. So you sort of have this two, parallel path while those things play out a recognition that um you know each other is needed still in in that scenario but you know i think we've said and i think everybody tends to agree right with this in general like it'd just be better if everybody really worked worked together and and understood this is a complex global problem and made progress in that instead of fought some of these battles even if they are more more language driven um but i want to come back to this sort of talent question because it's come up a number of different times. Uh, the, the issue of where will, I mean, every country has to address this, right? If you want to bring more onshoring, you need to be developing the expertise for your gaps locally, right? That's why China started investing a ridiculous amount of money in semiconductor manufacturing so that they could, you know, have people go to school, get engineering degrees, and then go work at SMIC or, or other places trying to push the leading edge. They needed that talent pool because they weren't just going to pull it from other places. You know, Taiwan's very, very good at the manufacturing talent pool. Maybe maybe they care less about design, but but 
looking at the United States, where are sort of that next generation of designers? Where is the next generation of semiconductor engineers who have skills in tooling and manufacturing? Like, where is that going to come from? I think is a really interesting question. And hopefully a continued narrative of this CHIPS Act that it's not just, you know, investing money in companies that are going to build foundries, but the people who are going to be involved in that semiconductor ecosystem locally. Yeah, I, th- I think this idea of talent is super important. And we kind of glossed over it a couple times on the, on the show already. But it, it's clear that it's very much on everybody's mind is everybody wants to build semiconductor capacity whatever, in whatever form. It's not clear that there are sufficiently trained labor participants to provide that. Uh, and I think, I, you know, if, if anybody's listening and can recommend a good knowledgeable person who wants to come on on the guest on the show and talk about HR hiring and employment in the semiconductors. I, I think that'd be a great topic to look at. Um, my, my take is that we have, I don't know if we have enough talent, but I think we have, are pretty close to having the capabilities to train that talent. There's lots of things we could do better in training the talent uh, across, across the ecosystem. Uh, It'd be fun to see people, you know, there are a lot of interesting projects out there that I know of. people are trying to do different ways. Um, but it's certainly, a, it's, it's a, it's one of those problems that people have to start thinking about taking more seriously is, is there enough tra- trained talent to actually provide the semiconductor ambitions of all the countries that want to have them? U.S. can probably do it. Um, a lot will depend on our immigration policies. Yeah. And again, I'm trying say, to stay out of politics say, yeah. here, but that's, yeah. that's, Right. I mean, that's that's going to be an important issue. Um, the, t- the talent's out there. I, I, the talent's out there for the U.S. I don't know if there's enough talent out there for the whole world to achieve yeah. their dreams. Right. Exactly. I mean, th- to be honest, like, so I don't know. Um, this might have been last week or the or the week before. I, I can't remember. But uh, a fairly well-known deep tech uh, venture capitalist named Josh Wolf, who's one of the uh, par- partners at um, Lux Capital, shared a video of himself uh, talking before Congress about sort of this challenge. And so he was making a point about immigration. He was saying, listen, we could have the opportunity to be something. And he used TSMC. And he basically said, like, we could have had the opportunity of a of thing like TSMC if we were just free with our immigration. And just let, let them come. Let's invite people here, talented engineers, and, and so the, the, while it was an immigration point, it spoke back to if, if we're making some of the best semiconductors in the world, which I think is the hope, right, of, of Intel and others that you say, that we're competitive, right, and the leading edge, that we would attract that talent globally. But then there's that other element of, I think, it would be great to see how universities are starting to tackle this and create programs that encourage and foster sort of the next generation of of, of those who will come up to the semiconductor industry, because I think it requires both those things from a, from a U.S. standpoint. Obviously, if you're India or or Israel or China or, or wherever, right, you want to keep that talent there, which is why you know you hear them starting to talk about this as well. You know, South Korea the same way. Um, but but for the U.S., I think it's a both scenario, right? We want we we hope that universities encourage these programs, exploration and architecture and design, because again, this is going to come to robotics. This is going to come to vehicle automation. 
home audit, like all this stuff is important. And so those are things that they're in, you know, doing in engineering labs, those types of things. Um, but it's both, it's that importing, right? Let talent come. And then also we've got to foster and grow in our own universities as well. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me too, because I think the, the US has had this problem for years where computer science, electrical engineering graduates have not wanted to go into semiconductors, right? And I, I know this firsthand is working at a semiconductor company is not as cool as working at a, a software company, a hot right. software company where they have all the perks and you have ping pong tables and massage chairs, right. uh, software, you know, semiconductor companies don't have that, right? Broadcom doesn't yes. even have coffee for its employees, for goodness sake, yeah. right? But even, even, you know, companies that aren't Broadcom aren't that cheap, right? You, you, you walk into their offices and it feels like very, very corporate cubicles everywhere. Uh, I've heard the NVIDIA offices are a little bit more fun now, but I, I think sure for, most, the for the ones, most part, these, yeah. these aren't, yeah, the new ones, but for the most part, these aren't like super hip feeling places. And, you know, right. I have, I have a friend actually, whose, whose daughter graduated from Cal Berkeley double E and got an internship in, in NVIDIA's AI team. And did really, really well. And they invited her back after she graduated and she decided to take a gap year instead to go learn cooking in France. <laughs> right. Well, and um, I, I can I can sympathize. <laughs> I would like to go spend a, a year at the Cordon Bleu. Absolutely. Or just living in France. Uh, but, you know, we, we have to find ways to make, I think the chip companies, it's 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 incumbent on the chip companies themselves to, to figure these issues out and, and make right. their workplaces a little bit more attractive and, and I, I shouldn't, I don't want to be, too, I don't want to beat them up too much. They, they've, they've made improvements, but still it's, it's just, it's a different environment. It's a different mindset. Engineering and companies that, that are has to very change. different. And, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and but, I think right when you right? come back to this, this broad talk, like I guess what I wish and I get it, it's political rhetoric, which is why, to your point, right? We stay away from it. It just always feels, <laughs> this is a, and I know this is a broad comment I'm making and everyone will be like, oh, that's just true of all politics. But listening to them talk about semis, it just feels so disjointed to the depth of the situation. Like it's just very surface level. It's not, you always listen to them talking, you're like, you don't have any idea what you're talking about, about the semiconductor industry. And like I said, I know this is true about everything. It's just, that one in particular, I'm always like, I just wish you'd talk more about, all right, well, how are we going to solve it? We got to do this. We got to have, you know, we got to have universities investing in humans and blah, blah, blah. But like I said, it's always very rhetoric. Yeah. I, I try not to think about that because whenever I think about, oh, I like when I think about what the politicians are saying about chips and I say, oh, imagine what they're saying about healthcare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Because we think, oh, right. you know, hey, but then somebody listens to it and they're like, they don't know what they're talking about. Super, right. super, right. so That's encouraged. Right. I, I will, I, I will, I will say this though that the uh, amount of engagement I'm having with people in Washington D.C. in the last two years is like infinitely more than it ever has been before. Right, yeah. I'm right. I, I've been, I, and I imagine you too have been just like people in D.C. really want to learn about this stuff and know more. And uh, I, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with all kinds of groups uh, in the policy circles. Yeah. And so that's, that's encouraging. They're at least it's trying to learn. Right. Agreed. All right. Well, we kept this episode short, uh, just to hit on this topic. So we do appreciate everybody listening. 
we will be back again next week with episode 30, actually. We're with the milestone of 30. So thanks for listening. Appreciate your time. And uh, click, subscribe, all the things that uh, rate us on iTunes that, that Jay pushes and remembers and promotes. Good things for us. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Tell your friends. Bye.